listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. y'all here this morning. Um, it's an honor to stand up here with God's Word. just want to uh, just take a minute and um, tell you how thankful I am for you. Um, it, it's just uh, such a privilege to be a part of a body of believers uh, that express their love to one another and, uh, in such a healthy and beautiful ways, but also a love for the community. I know we said our food's running low in the food bank, and man, the, the, the wash tub a lot, of, a lot of you don't know what a wash tub is, um, but the wash tub has just been full of groceries for the past two weeks, and we're able to help people with that. Um, I watch people every week walk in with gifts to put around the, the tree up here. We want to serve the Pregnancy Resource Center. Um, a privilege to have uh, Pat and Kathy Kogan over in, uh, over in Kenya uh, serving uh, Travis and Laura and their families, and uh, what, a, what a joy that is. We've got people that next year are planning on uh, just taking their lives and investing that into mission. Um, meals are going out to help one another and serve one another and love one another. And so, um, so thank you so much. There's so many things that are going on, and y'all have been so uh, beautifully responsive. Uh, the truth of the matter is we gather here today as a sinful people. Uh, and if you want to find something wrong with our church, you probably don't have to look far. Uh, in fact, if all eyes are up here, you could start with me. Um, and about 99.9% of everything that you could find out would be completely accurate. But God is still at work, even in the midst of uh, our lives as uh, sinners. Um, we're in our Advent series. You say, why do you have an Advent series? Advent is a series of messages that we go through to prepare our hearts to properly respond to the first advent of our Lord and to turn our attention toward Christ coming back. And so as we've talked about advent, we've looked at joy. Chris Brown came here and preached on joy. We talked about hope. Michael came and preached on hope. Last week, Caleb Land preached on um, peace. And this morning, I'm going to be preaching on love from 1 John chapter 4 this morning. Now, that may sound familiar to you. Um, you probably won't remember it, but I preached this same passage last year for Advent on the topic of love. So um, don't be shocked if you maybe think you're hearing it again. I'm going to go ahead and admit to you it's the same text. I've changed several things around in the sermon, but I'm going to be looking at the application um, in a little more detailed way. In other words, we're going to add to what we talked about the last time. Um, as we look at 1 John, um, we understand that in 90 AD, an old man from the Isle of Patmos sat down and wanted to write um, to the church, and there were some things that were on his heart and mind. And there are three things that he emphasized. He emphasized them from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4 and verse number 6. And the three things that he emphasized were, first of all, obedience. Obedience is important. You can be blessed by being obedient. Secondly, he talked about doctrine, particularly Christology. There were some attacks on the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. And so John takes the time to deal with Christology. 
And thirdly, he does a deep dive on the subject of love. So he's talking about obedience, he's talking about Christology or doctrine, and he's talking about love. When he comes to chapter 4 and verse 7, where we're going to start this morning, he begins a, a summary of what he's already preached. In other words, he's going to emphasize the things that he has talked about up to this point in the, the broader perspective of things, but now in his recapping of what he's already talked about, the first thing that he wants to do a deep dive on or cause them to remember or emphasize again is this subject of love. And so as we look at the text this morning, uh, John very clearly breaks love down into three parts. The first thing we're going to see in verses 7 and 8 is this exhortation, this command. Let's look at this exhortation or command. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. All of these phrases are just just weighted. They're heavy. Anyone who does not know God Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, so there's this exhortation. Secondly, I'm taking a word that he uses in the text, the word manifestation. How do we know love when we see it? What does love look like? So there's the exhortation and the manifestation. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Finally, you see the application, the exhortation, um, the manifestation, and the application. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I want to point out this before we look at the details of the text. This text is bracketed with just this one word and it's the word beloved. Stop and let that sink in. Beloved, he's speaking to people that God has set his love upon and that he, John, the writer, has set his love upon. Beloved, the question you need to answer is this. Do you believe that and do I really believe that? When we hear that word mentioned as a title, which is a messianic title, but it's also a title for those who know Christ, can we just stop and be impacted by this name that he gives us? And it would do us well to just kind of like if, if there were some essential oils, you know, and we had put them in the diffuser and that aroma's filling the room whether it's lavender or peppermint or wintergreen or whatever essential oil you like, it would do us well to just sit down and hear the word beloved and then try 
to do everything that we can. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bring you into some uh, transcendental meditative state this morning. I'm trying to get you to understand that probably the greatest thing that you and I need to grasp this morning is this concept of beloved. Beloved. I'm sure that I don't understand it, and I'm sure that I don't think about it enough, and I'm sure that I believe the lies of the accuser because the last thing he wants you to experience is the sense of being loved by God and being loved by others. So, beloved, here's the exhortation. I'll cover it quickly because I covered most of it um, last year, and I'm sure all of you have these notes written down in your Bible um, with the date beside it. Um, he basically is saying, let us continue to love one another. And, and in the text, here's what he's pointing out. Verse 7, he says, there is the conspicuous presence of love. He is concerned. Listen, John is concerned. The apostle of love is concerned about how the church relates. That's what he's emphasizing. He's concerned about how the church relates. You can be obedient as the day is long, and I'm all for obedience, and I, I don't want to downplay obedience. And you can be doctrinally astute and doctrinally correct all day long, and I'm all for doctrinal correctness and doctrinal understanding. But if there is the absence of love, we are in deep trouble. And while our, while our obedience may be right and our doctrine may be right, there will be a putrid odor that, is, that, that, that emanates throughout the community from the church that does not love. And so he's saying, brothers, we need to love one another. Our, how we relate is very important. And I'm writing to you to tell you that there is this presence of love, this conspicuous presence of love that needs to be unleashed, that needs to be released among you as a body. Why? Why should this love be released among us and released from us? He gives it to us in the text. Love comes from God. Love flows out of who God is. That's important because love is not self-generated. Love does not come from within me, in fact, if you want to know what comes from within me, go to James chapter 4. Wars and fightings and conflict and dissension and backbiting and complaining and division. That's what comes from within me in my human condition. But when I know Christ, then love flows out of me. And we should love one another if we say that we know God because love comes from God. God is the one that generates any love in us that comes out of us toward others. He is the source of it. Love comes from God. He says, secondly, if we have been born of God, we will love. That is not to be questioned at all. Consequently, he's going to get to in verse number eight, but if love is not flowing out of us, we really don't know God. It's pretty clear, pretty black and white, pretty yes and no. If we have been born of God, we will love. Thirdly, he says this, if we have been born and love is generated out of us from him, we will know him. In other words, knowing God is not about knowing information about God, it's, it's, 
about experiencing him and, and his love for me and my love for him impacting my life practically in the way that I relate to those around me. In other words, if I'm going to truly know God, I must love him first and he must love me first. Because it is out of this love that the depth of our knowledge is experienced. Deep knowledge without deep love is an impossibility. No matter how much you think you know, true biblical knowledge will have a corresponding undeniable love. So there is the conspicuous presence of love, verse 7. But in verse 8, we see the conspicuous absence of love. And the verse speaks for itself. We don't need to extrapolate on it. Anyone who does not love does not know God. If, if we do not love, we do not know God. That is an absolute, absolute statement. There's, there's no wiggle room there. If the love that he places in us that is generated by him and him alone is not present in us and not flowing out of us, then we do not know him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is nothing that says more about the authenticity of our faith than how we love one another. So he, he gives us this this exhortation, let us continue to love one another. And he tells us that there is this conspicuous presence of love. If love is present, it will be undeniably conspicuous. And if love is absent, you will feel it. It will be conspicuous. You won't be able to deny it. When people walk into the body of Christ or wherever there are people that admit that they are believers, there should just naturally be with that or accompanying that, this love that he's talking about. The second thing that we see is not only the exhortation, but in verses 9 and 10, we see the manifestation of love. I'll read those verses again. Look at them, if you will. He said, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son and those that he sent his son to experience life in him. So the first thing we say from the text in verse 9 is this, God's love is life-giving. I think we've got to come to grips with the fact that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what... Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. That's a tragic place to be, spiritually dead. We're alienated from the life of God. There is no life in us apart from Christ Coming, But when Christ comes and when Christ loves, the manifestation of his love is that he gives us life. John chapter 1 and verse 4 said, In him was life and his life was the light of men. In other words, if we are not in Christ, we are in death. And if we are not in Christ, we are in darkness. I think we need to come to grips with that 
reality. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I live is not my life, but it is his life. John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. There is one that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but then there is Christ who comes that we might have life. And he is, according to John 14, 7, the way, the truth, and the life. And in Colossians 3, he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then in Ephesians 2, while we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that is preceded by this reality that he is the one that has quickened us and made us alive. I thought about it, and I wondered um, what it is that causes him to make us alive. I want to just say these five words quickly, and we get it from uh, a great Advent text, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Jesus is coming, and he says two things about Jesus. Number one, he's going to save his people from, his, uh, from their sins, so he's coming to save but also he quotes uh, Isaiah 7, I think, where Christ is uh, going to come and his name is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I just thought through Scripture and I asked myself, how does Christ give us life? And we need to know that because if we're going to love like he loves, not only do we experience his love because he is life-giving, but our love for others has to be life-giving as well. How does, how does he love us? He loves us by saving us. He loves us by sacrificing himself for us. We know Philippians chapter 2 tells us he humbled himself. He became obedient to death. He gave himself for you and for me. He died for our sin in our place. And by him dying and raise, raising, rising from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He now, because he is victorious over death and death has been defeated by his death, he now can give those who are his life. But it is rooted in the sacrifice of himself that we might have life. How does he give us life? He sacrifices himself for us. How does he give us life? Emmanuel, God with us, the little word with. That's how he gives us life. You can read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It is the Spirit who comes and lives within us, but it is this ministry of presence. In other words, life is found just by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ is with us. Thirdly, he gives us life through his countenance, um, his face shining upon us, the face of God. What do we see? Many times we don't see uh, the smiling countenance. We do not see a God who delights in us. And if you were not in Christ, you can't see a God who delights in you. But if you are the beloved, you can see a God who delights in you. But most of us see a God with a fist, a God with a hammer, a God who's ready to crush us. And if, again, if you are not in Christ, that is what you should see. But if you are in Christ, you need to see not a God with a hammer and not a God who is ready to crush you, but a God whose face delights in you. Fourthly, how does he give us life? He gives us life with touch. You look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and see how he came and moved among men and women. And finally, how does he give us life? He gives us life through his speech, through his word. 
Scripture is filled with, um, with instruction about the power of our words and uh, probably one of the most powerful things in all of humanity are the words that God has spoken and probably secondary to that are the words that we speak to one another. So God's love is life-giving. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no life. But if you are in Christ, you have life. It is found in him and him alone. Secondly, the text bears this out in verse 10. God's love is sin-bearing. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is justly and righteously angry at sin. And, and I don't want to miss that little three-letter word, sin. I don't want to miss it this morning. I, wanna, I want you to think about it for just a minute. Um, I want to tell you sin is bad, okay? Um, I, I don't want to lie to you today. I don't want to trivialize sin for one second. Um, I was driving in this morning from, uh, from Hampton, and I'm driving down the Hampton Locust Grove Road, and, and I, I've got a problem with the, the switch on my bright lights, and so I don't have my bright lights as I'm driving along in the dark at about 6.30 this morning. And um, as I drive along, all of a sudden, my lights that are shining on the ground catch this beautiful bulldog. And I don't know what you see when you see stuff, but... My bad eyes having to wear these, you know, bifocal uh, progressive lenses, they catch great detail. And it was like time stood still. I mean, the dog's left ear was flopped over. He had a, he had a, and I'm driving 50 miles an hour, um, and I, I saw him for less than a second. He had a collar that was gleaming. He had, he had a, a black patch on one eye. He was a bulldog, little short-legged bulldog. I'd love to have a bulldog. But they, they stink, and, and you know, there are all kind of problems that go along with them, and so I, I don't want one bad enough to have to put up with all the problems that go along with having a bulldog. And this bulldog was running toward me. He was running toward me. And I envisioned in a moment the sound that it would make had I not gotten out of his way. He was in the wrong lane. Somebody didn't tell him, you know, he needs to be in the right-hand lane. He was in the left-hand lane. And we were about to have a head-on collision. Can I just tell you this morning that if you are in sin today, and we all have sin, but if you are in sin apart from Jesus Christ, you're just in the wrong lane. And you may be enjoying it right now. And you may think that sin is life, but I want to tell you that your sin will kill you. Your sin will destroy you. You may think that I'm trying to take something from you this morning that you love and need. But I want to tell you that I want to take something from you that's killing you. Life is not found in sin. We've got to understand the, the, the magnitude and the weightiness of sin this morning. If you are in sin, I beg you to turn to Christ and repent. If you are in sin, you cannot save yourself from your sin. If you are in sin, you are going the wrong way. 
Now, there was a time when this was not so. It was in the Garden of Eden. It was Adam. There was Eve. Life was great. But Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, it fundamentally changed who we are on the inside. When they sinned, we became sinners. Let me talk to you about this sin that we need to be saved from. We've got to understand the depth of it. We've got to understand how, it's, how it just weaves our way into the fabric of every part of who we are in our cells, in our brain, in our eyeballs, in our ears. It's just all over us. It's, it's like... It's like a, a, a really, really bad case of poison ivy, except it's just covering every part of us inside and out. That's what happened in the fall. And you can go to Genesis 3 and you can read about the fall. Sin fundamentally changes who we are, not in just outwardly. So I'm not telling you today to stop doing outward stuff. I'm telling you that when we sin habitually and we love and live in our sin constantly is because there is a fundamental problem on the inside of us. Our outward actions are manifestations of a deeper problem that lead to destruction and death. In the garden, what we see that led to sin, and I just want to give you a list. And as I read this list, here's what I want you to think of as I go through this list. I want, you to, I want you to think this. This is the thing that ought to come to our mind. There's something wrong inside of me. There's something wrong inside of me. Something's not right inside of me. Okay? Whenever you think you need something besides God to satisfy you, the conclusion you ought to draw is there's something wrong inside of me. Whenever you want to hide, whenever you want to project an image that's not really you, whenever you want to put on fig leaves, whenever you want to be a poser, whenever you don't want people to see you for who you really are, you don't need to say, great strategy, you really fooled them. You need to say, there's, there's something wrong inside of me. Whenever you want to run and hide, whenever you want to isolate, you need to say there is really something deeply wrong inside of me. Whenever somebody points something out in your life, and you want to blame others? I'm, I'm just going through Genesis 3. These are things that happened in Genesis 3. These are products of the fall. These are products of sin. The first thing when God shows up, he's like, the woman that you gave me. Whenever we, whenever we start blaming others for what's going on and whenever we start justifying for what's going on, going on the thing that we need to say and come to grips with is there's something wrong inside of me. Whenever you're out in the garden and you see weeds growing up, right? Genesis 3, I'm going to curse the ground. Why? I'm just mean. No. I want you to be reminded there's something wrong in, inside. There's something wrong inside of us. And by the way, whenever there's this great pain in childbirth, which God... 
obviously never intended because it was a part of the curse. You need to say, man, we need to be reminded there is this thing called sin. There's something wrong inside of us. Whenever I want to dominate my wife and she wants to dominate me, I know that never happens to any of you. Whenever you find yourself in a marital argument, you don't need to say, I got a sorry wife or I've got a, a sorry husband. You need to say, something's going on inside of me. I got a problem in my interior world. And the thing we need to come to grips with is the fact that, that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves and we need someone else to save us. We are fundamentally flawed. We are fundamentally ruined because of Adam and Eve's sin and there's no way to sugarcoat it. But we still must stay in Genesis for a minute to understand the first advent of Christ and understand the second advent of Christ. And we need to understand with God knowing everything that while Adam and Eve are running to hide and cover themselves with fig leaves and they are rejecting vulnerability. And when we reject vulnerability, we need to say there's something wrong inside of me. But instead of them saying there's something wrong inside of me, they run and try to hide and cover themselves and they're running from God. And even in the midst of all of that, here is God saying, hey, where are you? He knew where they were. But he's calling out to them and he's pursuing them. He is running to you. Let me say this. He is running to you in your sin. This is gonna sound sacrilegious to some of you. But the love of Christ moves him to run toward us in our sin. Say, so, well, I don't believe that. Well, look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was hanging out with the worst of the worst. On your worst day, Jesus Christ is running toward you. And we've got to understand that when we understand what sin is and we understand that the text tells us that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sin. We need a, propiti a propitiator for our sin because there's nothing that we can do about it. Only God can do something about our sin and he did. Now he could punish us. He could kill us. The wages of sin is death. But what he did is he sent his son and he killed his son. It's called, from my understanding of Scripture, it's substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. He came to save us from our sin by being the propitiation, the offering that God offers to himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Romans 3.26, he is both the just and the justifier. He is just in that he satisfies the righteous requirements of God. He is, he is punished for our sin. The wrath of God is poured out on him for our sin. And he is the one who is the just one. And he is also the one that justifies us by his death for our sin in our place. So he is the propitiation for our sin. So God's love is life-giving and God's love is sin-bearing. That is the manifestation. But finally, we come to the application. Look, look, look if you will, at, at verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also 
to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If this is how God loved us, then this, the way he loved us, is how we ought to love one another. How is that? Our love should be life-giving and our love should be sin-bearing. Um, let me just let me just say um, a couple of things about that. And I've I've got my notes that I typed up, and I've got my notes that I feverishly scratched out this morning. And so maybe it'll make some sense to you. It made sense to me about two hours ago when I was writing it out. Um, just just several things as we think about how we love one another. Um, number one, we are sinners who sin against each other. We are sinners who sin against each other. If our relationships depend on neither of us sinning, we will never know the beauty of relating. If our relationships depend on neither one of us sinning, we will never know the beauty of relating. None of us is so good that we are above being sinned against or sinning against someone else. None of us is so good that we are above being sinned against. Right? And none of us is so good that we are above sinning against someone else. We will sin against each other. That is not the question. The only question as we make application of our love for each other the only question when it comes to sin is not whether or not we will sin against each other. The only question is who pays for it. The only question is who pays for it. Now, we would many times like to say that you did it, so you pay for it. We've got phrases like you made your bed, you lie in it or lay in it, depending on where you're from. I will just add back to Genesis 3. We were not created to carry or commit sin. We were not created to carry or commit sin. Psychologically, emotionally, relationally, biologically, sin causes malfunction in every area of our lives. We've got to see that in order to stand, in order to understand the beauty of what Christ has done. But we've got to see that in order to understand how, how we move quickly to deal with sin in our relationships with each other or with somebody that is struggling in sin. One of the most deadly destructive forces in our heart, our mind, our body, our soul is unresolved sin, unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin is empowering. Unforgiven sin gives us leverage. Unforgiven sin gives us the right to hold something over somebody or to hold something against somebody. Someone told me last week, someone that I know very closely and I know their life and I know their mother's life and I know their grandmother's life, but I never knew anything about their grandmother. 
she said that she just found out that her great-grandmother never married but had a child. She had that child as a result of sexual assault. And that child that she had, this great-grandmother, had the grandmother of the person that I know. And she said that that grandmother that she knew was a mean, bitter person. Was a mean, bitter person. And her mother is the same way. So we've got this issue three generations back that was never resolved, that was never dealt with, that was somehow swept under the rug, that, that was accompanied with great shame. Where do you put it? What do you do with it? How do you resolve it? It was unresolved. Passed on to the grandmother, this mean, crotchety, angry, bitter, hateful person. Passed on. Passed on to the, the mother, this mean, crotchety, bitter, hateful, suspicious, never peace. It's, it's because sin went unresolved. Unresolved sin will corrode and destroy our soul, and we cannot deal with sin on our own. Sin is not resolved by getting even. Sin is resolved by receiving and giving mercy because we have been to the cross and we have received mercy. We are loving like Jesus when we resolve sin against us. We are loving like Jesus when we accept his payment for offenses against us. Please hear me. There are those of you that can walk out of here this morning when you understand that Christ bore your sin. He loved you and he bore your sin, but he also bore the sin of those who have offended you. I would challenge you to accept his payment today. But I would also challenge you as you love others to think in terms of being a sin bearer because if we love like Christ loved, we will be sin, we will be life givers and we will be sin bearers. How how do we how do we how do we give life? How does our love give life? Let me start there. I've already dealt with how do we bear sin, but how does how does our love give life? First of all, just like Jesus, by being sacrificial by being sacrificial. Secondly, by being with. By being with. I, I just I check the news feed 20 times a day. I don't do Facebook. I don't do Instagram. Uh, I don't do what, all these other things, but I do check the news feed. Um, I just like to see what's happening in the world. And there's this guy that's got 11 kids. Y'all probably, who, who, do y'all know who he is? There you go. Who said that? Okay. All right. Nobody else was willing to admit it. I don't know how many wives he's got, but he's got 11 kids from several different sources. And he felt guilty because he didn't have time to spend with all of his kids. And, I, you know, I, that struck me as 
saying, hey, we can't relate without having time to spend with each other. How do we give life? We give life by being with. And, and I could give you a, 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 a myriad of, of ways that we are just with people. There, when, when the Spirit of God lives in us and the fruit of the Spirit is flowing out of us, when we are connected to people without even having an appointment, but we even walk in here this morning and we mill around and we rummage around and we speak to and we look people in the eye and we feel what's coming out of their soul and we look and, and we let them feel what's coming out of our soul, there is life that is given and exchanged in those moments when we are together. We are life-giving when we're sacrificial. We're life-giving when we're with. We're life-giving through our countenance. At the earliest age, a child can read a countenance. Even before they can speak, they can look at the expression on somebody's face. And facial expressions and countenance is absolutely universal. Every human being, there are consistent facial expressions that communicate more than our words could ever speak. When somebody falls in love with somebody, what is the thing that just kind of grips them in that love relationship? It's how they look at one another. It's what you felt when you saw them looking into your eyes. And many of you sit here today and you say, I wish he would look at me like he used to look at me. You don't see that anymore. Imagining the countenance of God and his love for us. Fourthly, touch. And finally, how do we give life? By the words that we speak. By the tone that we speak them in by the thoughtfulness of those words. You, you say, where are you getting that from? It's, it's clearly in the Bible. Our words can be like the thrashing of a sword. You ever felt sliced up by somebody's words? And so how do we give life to one another? Just in this brief time that we have together this morning, That is, those are five ways at least that we see in Scripture. But, but how, how do we bear sin What do we do when we come across somebody with pride? What do we do when we come across somebody with attitude issues? What do we do when we come across somebody that, that is angry or has self-pity or works too hard to prove themselves? What do we do with somebody in our sphere of influence that has an addiction that might be dealing with a serious addiction? It could be a drug addiction. It could be the things that they're Viewing. What do we do in those situations? I would say quickly that there are times that with, with great grief we release people into their sin. That's called church discipline. But we never stop longing and praying and loving and we never stop being available. We never throw out, stop, we never fail to throw out a lifeline. I hear, I hear folks say, I cut them off. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't ever want to be that way toward anybody. I just don't. We are, we are life-giving and we are sin-bearing. And here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the, the most repulsive sin that you could think of. And I want you to recognize the fact that Jesus Christ in love moved toward us when we were in that sin. And I want you and I to come to grips with the fact that as we love like Christ loved, 
there, there should be no sin because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There should be this love and this great mercy and this hesed that is greater than their sin that would give us the capacity to move toward our brothers and sisters in Christ and lead them to the cross, but also walk with them in this sin and not abandon them. I'm not talking about being complicit. I'm not talking about compromising. But I'm saying that they ought to know and feel and experience the love of Christ coming from us in their sin. You see, that is why Jesus Christ came. And so we see this application of this text. Beloved, if God so loved us, how did he love us? He loved us by being life-giving. As you sit here today, if you have experienced the life-giving power of God and you have experienced the sin-bearing love of God, then you have now been commissioned to go and give life, which is his life, which is in you, because he is the one that generates life, not us. And we go in loving others and we take their sin on us. You say, how do I do that? I treat, I treat their sin like it's my sin. In other words, if I was in that sin, how would I respond to it? Or how would I want to be responded to? We don't, we don't leave or abandon people in their sin. Some of you would say, my husband's got sin in his life. What do I do about that sin? I'm going to leave him. I'm going to abandon him. I'm sure there are times when that might be necessary, but I would say initial approach would be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join him, not in the sin, but I'm going to bear that with him and for him with the hope that he would come to the cross and he would be delivered and experience the life of Christ and the love of Christ. Now, John says something that's very interesting here at the end. And um, I, I, want you to, I want you to get this at the end. So what, what does life-giving love look like? That was one question and application. What does sin-bearing love look like? I've tried to answer that question. But then thirdly, look at verse 12, if you will. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another like this, if we love one another with a love that is life-giving and a love that is sin-bearing, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's what he's telling us, I believe. The closest thing you will ever get to seeing God on this earth is when you see life-giving sin-bearing love flowing freely among God's people. No one has seen God at any time. Nobody's going to, Jesus is not walking through the back door this morning. Now, some churches will tell you that he is. Some people will tell you that they were shaving and Jesus walked in the bathroom where they were shaving and they had a conversation with him. But the text says something different. It says uh, that no one has ever seen God Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Jesus Christ lived in the flesh. Jesus Christ died in the flesh. Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ is coming back visibly. But he's in heaven. If you want to see God, go where people 
are experiencing his love and their love is life-giving and sin-bearing. And again, he closes out by calling us beloved. And so with, with that, I challenge you in this Advent season as Christ has come, as love has come, let us realize that love has been given to us. Love as believers can be flowing from us. And when it is, love shows and love grows and the presence and the power of God are undeniable whenever we are around other transformed followers of Jesus Christ. As we come to the table this morning, as we think about his love that is life-giving and sin-bearing, um, I, I want you to have three thoughts in mind. As you take the bread and dip it in the juice or you grab a cup from the back table if you're a believer this morning. Uh, number one, um, I, I, want you to, I want you to hear him call you beloved. I want you to hear him call you beloved this morning. I want you to hear that. So as you take the bread and the juice in your mind, if you're in Christ, that's what he calls you this morning. Secondly, I want you to let him hear you say thank you. A lot of times we get in line and we walk up here and we've, we, we're, we've got our mind on lunch. I'm eight minutes and 58 seconds over my 40-minute allotment. Um, but can we, just, can we just stop for a minute? Can you just in your heart and in your mind just, just, like, like just take a time out and, and here on this Sunday morning, could you just stop and say, I have life because you have given me life. And I don't have to live beneath the weight of my sin because it was resolved when I went to the cross. And say thank you. But you, could you also say thank you because you ran into somebody that was life-giving and sin-bearing. And they offered you the hope that is found only in Christ because they found the hope that is found only in Christ. Could you stop and just remember them and thank God for them this morning? And then finally, after you partake and after we have our benediction, I would challenge you this morning to, to leave here aware of your God-given capacity to love. You hear me? Leave here aware of your God-given capacity to love. Leave here aware of your God-given capacity to be life-giving. Leave here aware of your God-given capacity to be sin-bearing. In other words, not to just leave somebody in their sin, but to be sin-bearing. I was standing in line yesterday at um, Honey Baked Ham, and the, the line people were just going in and just going crazy. And uh, for, for some reason, after driving through all that traffic and walking a half mile, because I had to park behind Tanger, walk all the way around, I'm dodging traffic. I mean, I, I looked like 
I looked like O.J. Simpson running through the airport. Some of you don't understand that, but when he did the Hertz Rent-A-Car commercials, he's just running along with a briefcase. And so, and I, I got to the counter, and this little girl's waiting on people. She's kind of stone-faced. And uh, I said, how, how are you doing today? And she's okay, you know. I said, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate all that you're doing. Um, I said, are people generally nice um, during this time of year when things are so busy? She said, no. I said, I'm so sorry. I wish it wasn't that way. Um, I, it wasn't much, but man, I looked at her eyes and my, my heart just went out to her. I don't know if she knows Jesus or not, but she needs Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me give you my last statement again. Leave here aware of your God-given capacity to love. It is beyond anything that you can even begin to imagine. Your God-given capacity to love is beyond anything that any of us could even begin to imagine. Don't overthink it. Just unleash it. Just unleash it. Let's pray together, and then I invite you to come this morning and remember the Lord. Hear him call you beloved. Let him hear you say thank you. And then leave here aware of your God-given capacity to love. Father, thank you for uh, a, clear, um, a clear picture from your word of your love for us and how we can obey this exhortation, this command to love one another. I pray that it would be seen here in this place. And I pray that those who doubt that you exist and who doubt that your word is true, I pray that they would say, God is real. God is real. Because I saw him at South Point when I saw those folks loving each other. And when I felt those folks loving me, God is real. I pray for those that are just enslaved to sin this morning. Let them see that there is a way out. But there's only one way out. We thank you that you are the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that you come to us. You call out to us. Where are you? Where are you? Let us run to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.